All right, so let's just do a quick recap for if you've missed some or, you know, haven't been around. Uh, we're in Luke, and Jesus, a couple weeks ago, uh, he came into the, he's in the last week of his life now before the crucifixion and the resurrection. And in the last week, he comes in, you know, the triumphal entry, Hosanna in the highest, all that jazz, right? He comes in on the donkey, the whole thing, right? He goes into town a couple of times. He's doing a couple of things. He's teaching at the temple a bunch. One of the days he goes in and he sees the, the money changers and everybody in the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles were supposed to come and worship. And they were making it impossible for the Gentiles to worship at the temple. And so Jesus absolutely loses it. He goes, John in traffic on these people, right? That's a good illustration if you've ever seen me drive. I wish it wasn't, but it is. And he flips the tables and he goes bananas. And uh, So what happens next, though? So you got to imagine, that's a pretty big deal, right? Uh, he's, flipping temple, he's flipping tables in the temple. He's upsetting the whole system. And not just on any week. He's doing this in Passover week where literally hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people come into the town, the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the actual city was not that big. Like, imagine if two million extra people came to North Beach for a week, right? It's like a big deal. There's a lot of stuff around. It's a major high holiday for the Jewish people. And so what we read uh, two weeks ago um, was the story where Jesus then, after the, the flipping of the tables and everything, he's in the temple and he's teaching, and the Sanhedrin, who was like the Jewish ruling council, they send some representatives to question Jesus, and they say to Jesus, who gave you the authority to do these things? And what they meant by these things was to flip tables and to teach in the temple. Remember, Jesus never went to seminary or whatever. He wasn't a trained rabbi. And so uh, they were wondering. They were publicly challenging Jesus and challenging his honor and challenging his authority. And so what Jesus does was brilliant, like he usually is. He says to them, okay, let me ask you a question. Uh, John the Baptist, was he really a prophet or not? And they go, uh-oh, we don't know what to say. Because if we say yes then everybody will call us liars because we just we didn't like John the Baptist and we had him killed. And if we say no, their people will kill us because they love John the Baptist and they think he's a real prophet. So they go, I don't know. And Jesus goes, fine. If you don't know if John's a prophet, then what makes you think that you can judge me and my authority? You got it wrong with John. And then he tells a parable about the, the Sanhedrin. And he says there was a vineyard. And in the vineyard, the guy owned the vineyard and some tenants rented it, right? And uh, he tried to get his money when the grapes were grown and everything, and they wouldn't give him the money. So he sent some servants. They beat up the servants over and over again. Well, this time I'll send my son. And they sent the son. So the landlord sends the son, and then they killed the son. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin guys, they get real upset because they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. At the end of the parable, he says, so the, the owner, he's going to take the vineyard. He's going to give it to somebody else. He's going to give it to the Gentiles that you weren't letting worship in the court of the Gentiles. And so that's where we pick up last week. Now, what we're going to read this week is what we call, uh, what scholars call an honor contest. Now, I, I, I learned a lot about this a couple of months ago, and uh, it's actually pretty interesting. So in our culture in the West, right, we're very individualistic, and we don't do honor, shame, and all that stuff, right? But if, you know, some of you guys are from... Uh, Eastern cultures, you know, come from Eastern backgrounds. You guys probably understand this stuff a little better than we do or than I do. But um, in in the in honor and shame cultures, when in especially ancient, this is an ancient thing, ancient honor shame cultures. If somebody was reaching past the honor that was due to them, so basically Jesus is saying, "You guys owe me more honor than what you're giving me," and I'm going to teach in the temple, and even though I'm from this backwoods little town and I've never had any training. I deserve more honor than what you're giving me. And so the, he's acting like he has more honor than he does, or they think he does. And so they challenge him. That's what we read last time. Who gave you this authority? Basically, they're saying, you're overstepping your bounds in our honor and shame society. And so Jesus absolutely runs circles around them intellectually last week. And so this time, what's going to happen, though, is they're going to have an honor contest. They're going to, now, in front of the, the crowd, they have to decide is the honor that Jesus is claiming for himself, is it actually due him or not? Who's right, Jesus or the Sanhedrin? 
And in any honor contest, there's three things that have to happen. So the first is one party challenges another publicly. That's what we read last week. They challenged Jesus publicly. The second is the party, the, the challenged person responds. And so he did. He responded. You, you guys can't judge me because you couldn't even judge John. And the third thing is uh, in that response, they go back and forth. So it's not usually just one response. It's like a, a couple of times they have this back and forth dialogue. And then at the end, the crowd decides. The crowd basically gets to vote. It's like America's Got Talent kind of a thing. They get to decide who was right, which one of these two people was right. And so um, the closest, I was reading this book about it, uh, about these kind of honor contests. And as I was reading it, and I was reading the thing about, and then the crowd decides, the illustration that popped in my head was, oh, that's like a rap battle. Like, you guys ever seen a rap battle? I got a, there's a bunch of these on YouTube, you know? Um, uh, if you've ever seen it, this is how it works, right? Two guys get up with a mic, somebody plays a beat, and they freestyle and they make fun of each other while they're rapping, and then the crowd decides who was the most clever, who was the best, and they go bananas, and then the other guy is embarrassed. So what we're going to read today is Jesus versus the Sanhedrin in a, like a theological rap battle that doesn't rhyme at all. But it's the same idea. It's just instead of uh, hip-hop, it's two guys getting up and arguing about theology. And then because they're saying, you don't have the chops, Jesus, to have this kind of theological honor. And so they're going to have this rap battle, uh, and then the crowd is going to weigh in. So let's take a look. We'll follow along if you can. Um, Luke 20, uh, this is verse, so we're going to read uh, 19 through, I don't know, a bunch here. Where are we going? To 44. All right, verse 19. So the scribes and the chief priests, they sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against him, but they feared the people. So this was the last verse we read last week. Um, I just wanted to show you something, right? So we, I, we've talked about who these guys are. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the leaders of the, the, the temple system, right? And the leaders of the, the government of Israel, basically. But there's actually something really interesting that Luke leaves out, but Mark puts in. Look at this. In the in the Gospel of Mark. This is the exact same part of the story. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the Pharisees were this one uh, group of Jewish people, a religious group. The Herodians, these were the guys who were like the political party of Herod, the Herod family, right? So these guys, the Herods, they loved Rome. They were more pro-Rome. The Pharisees were the opposite of that. They hated the Romans, you know. So this is really interesting. This is like, uh, imagine if for a second, you guys know AOC, the Democrat congresswoman from, was it Brooklyn? Alexandria, what's her name? Ocasio-Cortez, is that right? They just call her AOC, right? Now imagine if you opened up the newspaper, pretend that's the thing people still do, right? So the smell of ink and everything. And uh, you open up the newspaper, and it says, AOC and Ted Cruz are co-sponsoring a bill together. You'd be like, what? That's, huh? Those are like far left and far right co-sponsoring a bill together. That's what's happening here, the Pharisees and the party of Herod. Actually, AOC and Ted Cruz did sponsor a bill together. That's why I said that. Did you know that? They sponsored a bill banning Congress people for life from becoming lobbyists after they leave Congress. It was interesting. She tweeted something, and he was like, you know what? That's a good idea. And then I think they still hate each other, but I think they both put their names on the bill because they thought that was a good idea. Anyway, um, this is what's going on here. These guys hate Jesus so much, like Congress people hate lobbyists, I guess, uh, that the, these two groups are coming together. So now the honor contest. Look what they do. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So Luke uses a really weird word here for spies. Uh, spies is a great translation. It's kind of a, there's no real English translation. Um, it means somebody who hides and then ambushes people. Like, do you guys remember, I don't know, uh, I bet if you've been in, I think he died before you got here. You guys would probably remember the guy who hides in the bushes at Pier 39. Do you guys remember this guy? You, yeah, you've seen this guy? Yeah. So he would go and he would hide in the bushes 
And when the tourists would walk by, he would jump out and scare them. And then he would have his little money can and people would donate. And it was like, if you knew where he was, you could sit at the benches like just down the way and you could watch him do it for hours. And it was pretty funny. Uh, but I think he died now because I, I saw that in the paper. Um, but anyway, that's kind of the word that Luke uses here. They're trying to hide and then jump out and get Jesus, right? In the Old Testament, actually, this was an idiom for murderer. They would use the same word for like somebody who was a murderer. So like they send these people. They are not good people. They're not there with noble intentions. Like what are their goals? What does it say? Well, they're trying to catch Jesus in something that he said. As we'll see in a second, good luck with that. And then they want to catch him in something he said so that then they could turn him into the governor. The, the reason there, Luke doesn't really explain this because everybody in this culture would have just kind of known what he was talking about. But a couple of years before this, Rome went to the Jewish nation and said, you guys no longer have the right or the ability as a government to execute people. If you want to execute somebody, you need to bring them to us and then we'll decide that they should be put to death. And that is really weird because this is a culture that like, does anybody know when was the last California execution? I mean, it's been years, right? 2010 or something? I mean, it's been a long time. We don't execute a lot of people in California. This was a culture that just killed people constantly. Like, you stole something, you know, they put you on the cross, right? It wasn't just capital, like, it wasn't just uh, murder and kind of the same kind of crimes, right? And so even in this culture where they execute people all the time, Rome goes, you guys don't get to execute anybody. And so if they wanted somebody executed, they had to bring them to the governor and then have a trial in Roman court. And there's actually one time where they do this with Paul. They bring him to the governor and they go, this guy's teaching all this wrong stuff. Or it's not the governor, like the mayor of the town that they were in. And the guy goes, who cares about your stupid theology? It, this doesn't matter to us. And they don't, and he kind of leaves Paul alone. Well, here with Jesus, we obviously know what happens next, right? That's not what happens. Uh, they do bring him to the governor, and he is executed. But here's the deal. The reason I'm pointing all this out, that they want to bring him to the governor to be executed, is you can see how serious this theological rap battle is to these guys, right? This is not just like if you lose a rap battle, you, you, know, you slump your shoulders and you walk off stage and you're humiliated, right? This is not. The stakes here are higher. They are trying to have Jesus murdered because they don't like him. And they're even willing to have their enemies help them go have Jesus murdered, right? So this honor stuff is very, this honor and, uh, that Jesus is trying to grab for himself is very important here in the story. This is really the reason in the minds of these people that Jesus was killed. All right, so verse 21. So they asked him. So they send these spies. They're trying to trap him. Let's look at the rap battle. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and you show no partiality, but teach, uh, but truly teach the way of God. All right, the theological word for this right here is kissing butt, right? These guys are a bunch of butt kissers. They come up to Jesus. This is so insincere. Look at what they say. You speak and teach rightly. You teach the way of God. Okay, they don't believe this at all because if they don't believe Jesus has the authority to be a teacher of God's word, that's what this whole thing is about. That's my job, not your job. And you're trying to take my job, and so we're going to have this honor contest. If they actually believed that Jesus spoke for God, this whole thing wouldn't be happening. The second thing they say is they show no, you show no partiality, which is just like fancy Bible talk for you're fair in how you deal with everyone, right? You treat everybody fairly. Now, they didn't believe this either because they're upset about how he treated them. You came in and you flipped my tables over. So if they believed Jesus was fair and that he was always right, we wouldn't be having this whole thing. So now it's time for the gotcha question. You ever see this like uh, in a debate or something where like one candidate asks another candidate, like he, you can tell he's had this in his pocket the whole night and he's been waiting to throw it in his face. Oh yeah, well, what about that time you cheated on your wife? Or, you know, kind of a thing, right? So this is their gotcha question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute or taxes Tributed taxes to Caesar or not. So again, the historical context here is really important. We've gone over some of this history before, so this will be a little repetitive if you've been here for the whole book of Luke. But here's what's going on. Um, uh, there was the exile, 586 BC. All the people of God were taken into exile, the ones that were left, not all of them, but a lot of them, into the city of Babylon. In the city of Babylon, they were there for about 70 years. They came back. 
while they were in Babylon, so the first people who ruled over them were the Babylonians. During the exile, the Persians defeated the Babylonians. So now Persia's in charge of the land of Israel. The Persians let the people go home and rebuild the temple and stuff. Well, then the Persians fell. Boy, she's really going for it, huh? The Persians fell uh, to a group called, what's his name? Uh, Alexander the Great. You know him? Uh, Colin Farrell from the movie. So Alexander the Great comes in. He defeats the Persians. He dies young. And on his deathbed, do you remember this story? There's, he has his vast empire. And on his deathbed, they go, who's going to be your replacement? And he goes, the strongest, and then he dies. And I'm like, what a punk move, man. Just say somebody's name, you know? So anyway, there were four generals, and they fought each other for a while, and then eventually they came to a settlement, and they split up Alexander the Great's kingdom into these four sort of kingdoms. So those guys, those two of those guys specifically, ruled over the land of Israel for a while, and it kind of bounced around. And then there was the whole Maccabean revolt. This is like during the intertestamental period, between the Old and the New Testaments. So there was a whole revolt against uh, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a real turkey. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. You know, that's where he, he banned anybody from circumcising children and from reading Torah, and he executed people. He was pretty awful. So they rebelled against him, and they set up a new kingdom of leaders called the Hasmonean dynasty. And the Hasmoneans ruled for, I don't know, it was like 200 years or something, and uh, they were also pretty terrible, but they were actually Jewish, right? They were Jewish people ruling themselves again. And at one point, two of these Hasmonean guys were fighting over which one of them was going to be the next king. And so one of them, the, I think both of them, went to Rome, who was like the big power at this time now. And they said to the Romans, hey, Romans, I want you to make me the king. And they both went. And then Rome did what you do when two kids are fighting. You know, shut up, both of you, and go sit in the corner. I'm in charge. And that's what happened. So Rome sort of took over the land of Israel, and they became this occupying force. And there were like different revolts and violence, and the Jewish people uh, really did not like the Romans, and so there were constant uprisings and all that stuff. So Rome, at this point, is in charge, and there's this long history of oppression, and these people, these Jewish folks in Israel, they're being ruled by foreign powers. And the current foreign power is uh, Tiberius Caesar, right? It's Caesar. And so <clears throat> the question, well, actually, let me, let me put this, I guess, in a way that'll help you understand a little bit more. Let me tell you a little story. Imagine for a sec a situation. Uh, right now, every night I go to sleep and I listen to uh, the World News Podcast from the BBC. And it's like a half hour news program, but it's like not local US news, it's like world news. And almost every night, there's at least something about the war in Ukraine, right? What's going on? Russia has invaded Ukraine. Now, I want you to imagine something with... Oh, and the other thing that's happening is a bunch of European countries that are bordering or right next to Russia are all trying to join NATO right now because they want the protection of the, you know, NATO. It's like an alliance of a bunch of countries. So imagine for a sec this situation. I don't know how this would happen. So this is kind of out there. But imagine that Russia wins the war in Ukraine. And then that triggers a war somehow with the rest of NATO. And then imagine that Russia wins the war with NATO. And during that time, Russia, and the way that they're, they're losing the war, and their only hope to win the war against the U.S. and Canada and Australia and, you know, basically the Western world, right? Their only hope is to ally themselves with communist China. And so Russia and China form an alliance against the U.S. and Europe and everybody. And World War III happens. This is actually less far-fetched than you would imagine. <laughs> it's kind of scary. Now, imagine China. I mean, there's a lot of military power in China. Imagine China and Russia somehow win the war, right? The U.S. has a pretty good track record of winning world wars, but let's pretend we lost one for a minute. And so what happens now is the U.S. government becomes sort of just a puppet government without any real power. And your daily life now is run by the Chinese communists, and uh, Putin and the Russians. And there's some Russian guy who is now in charge of the United States. So we have a president and everything, but he works for some other guy, some Russian guy or some Chinese guy. And now let's imagine that this guy who's in charge of the United States says, you know what? We're going to set up a 75% income tax. So you've got a job, you make $100,000 a year, you get to keep $25,000 and then we're going to take 75,000 of those dollars and make, 
put it towards the military to continue oppressing you. That's basically the situation that Jesus and these folks are in. It's kind of hard for us to imagine what it was really like, but this is centuries and centuries and centuries of oppression. And so you can hopefully see the trap that they're trying to lay. This is the gotcha question for Jesus. If Jesus answers, yes, you should pay your taxes to Rome, everybody's going to hate his guts, and he's going to lose the honor contest because the crowd hates Rome. They don't want to pay their taxes. Taxes stink, right? And especially they stink if you're paying it to an oppressive occupying force. But if he answers that they shouldn't pay their taxes, if Jesus goes, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Rome, they're an occupying force, what's going to happen? They're going to grab Jesus, they're going to walk him over to the governor, and they're going to say, this guy says you shouldn't pay your taxes. He, he hates the Romans, which they actually lie, and that's one of the ways they get Jesus executed in a, a couple of days. But that, that's their plan. So you can see, this is a no-win situation for Jesus, but he perceived their craftiness. I love this. Jesus, you got to get up pretty early in the morning to fool the guy that created the world. You know what I mean? Like, this is not going to go well for them. So he says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So a denarius was a Roman coin, and there was an inscription on one side of the coin that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So basically, like, Tiberius Caesar, he's the son of a god. On the other side of it was his picture. And, um, man, I'm so stupid. I actually have one of these coins at home I should have brought it today and been like, oh, look at this. Uh, can I do a sidebar real quick? When I was in sixth grade, uh, I got, I don't know, 35 detentions or something, and they told me they were going to kick me out of school. So I was in the principal's office a lot. Me and the principal were close. And the principal had on his desk this, like, um, resin little cube, not cube, uh, like rectangle kind of thing, and in it had a bunch of old coins from back in the day. And one of them, I think, is a denarius. And so every day, I would get sent to the principal's office for my detention or whatever, and I would get in trouble. And then every day when I leave, I was real slick, and I would swipe it from his desk. <laughs> and I would go to class. And then some point in the day, he would come and find me, and he would say, give me my coins back. <laughs> so I did this, I don't know, at least 35 times, right? Because I had a lot of detentions. And then at the end of the year, uh, he gave it to me. And so I still have it, and it's got one of these coins in it. Um, but they're actually little, and what's interesting about these coins, they're not perfectly round like our coins. Okay, so anyway, this is the thing. So they, Jesus asks them, show me the, the coin that John has at home. And uh, he show, they, they look at it, and it's got a picture of Caesar on it. So he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So let's look at Jesus' answer. This is what he says. Yes, you should pay your taxes. This is the closest thing that Jesus comes to making a political statement at any point in his entire ministry, is pay your taxes. So Jesus is basically saying, by using money, you guys use the money all day, by using money with Caesar's picture on it, you're admitting that he has civil authority in your life. So you can't use his money and then refuse to pay his taxes. That's what Jesus says. That's not how it works. So you are obligated to pay him the thing, the taxes that he is due. Jesus doesn't make a comment on how high those taxes were. He doesn't make a comment on what the taxes were used for. He just says, dude, you're, the money has Caesar's picture on it. You have to pay your taxes. But that's not where he left it. If he leaves it there, he loses the honor contest because the crowd goes, this guy sucks, we hate paying taxes. That's not what he does. Then he goes, but give to God the things that are God's. So here's the million-dollar question. What is Jesus talking about? What are the things that are God's? Well, in the way, the way Jesus argues here and the way a lot of Scripture works is by comparing and contrast, like comparing two things. And so what he's saying is uh, the coin has Caesar's image on it. And so because it has Caesar's image on it, that coin actually belongs to Caesar. So the question that we need to figure out, that's the first part. The second part is analogous, right? So what is Jesus talking about? What, we need to figure out what, is he, what has God's image on it that we need to give to God, the same way a coin has Caesar's image on it, so we give it to Caesar. 
And the answer is from Genesis. So God created man in his own image. Right? We're made in the image of God. It says, in the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. This is the answer. You limit what you give to Caesar. You don't pay Caesar more taxes than he's due. Right? Has anybody ever done that? You know what? I thought the government did a good job this year. So I'm going to pay my taxes and then a little bit extra. By the way, I know my brother makes his whole living helping people make taxes, but is this system that we have here is absolutely nuts, right? Because it goes like this. You got to pay taxes. Okay, how much do I owe? Oh, you got to figure that out yourself. Okay, but what if I get it wrong? Then you can go to jail. <laughs> so you know how much. Yeah, but we're not going to tell you. Anyway, I hate our tax system. <laughs> right? But nobody ever looks at the taxes and goes, you know what? I thought the roads were extra uh, smooth and there were hardly any potholes. I'm going to throw a little bit extra in there for Uncle Sam. Nobody ever does that, right? Jesus says, all you, with Caesar, all you do is pay the minimum, and you don't even have to do it joyfully, right? It, he's just give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But God, he didn't put his image on money, right? He put his image on your very being, on your very soul. And what that means is all of you belongs to God. When he says give to uh, God the things that are God's, what Jesus is saying is, that's you. And so you begrudgingly, you can pay your taxes and you just pay the minimum. You don't have to pay extra. But not with your life. That's not what we do with our lives. We give our whole lives to God. And the implications of, the implication of Jesus' brilliant answer to this question is a couple things. Right? Like I said, civil authority has their place in God's sovereign plan. Civil authorities are not supreme, uh, but God has a claim on everything. God is supreme. And so, in this honor contest, Jesus' answer is absolutely brilliant. These scribes couldn't accuse him of insurrection by demanding that people don't pay their taxes, because that's not what he said. He said you should pay your taxes. Um, but also, nobody in the crowd could accuse him of being a Roman loyalist and not being somebody who loved Yahweh God. He clearly puts the civil authorities in their place. They're not supreme. God is supreme. And so he just answered his way out of the trap. And so they were not able in the presence of all the people, right? In, in the crowd who decides who wins the honor contest, uh, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. I love that. This is the key to the honor contest, right? Jesus clearly wins round one. Uh, he gets the approval of the crowd. Now, round two. We've got to hustle through these next ones, so we'll make it on time. There came to him some Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection. So in round two now, he's specifically arguing with a group called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, this is the only time they're mentioned in the book of Luke. And they were a smaller group. The Pharisees were a, a large religious group. There were a lot of Pharisees around. Um, <clears throat> the Sadducees were much smaller. They were kind of like the elites. Uh, they ran the Sanhedrin. So that, the, the high priest was a Sadducee. That ruling council was filled up with mostly Sadducees. Josephus, who was like a historian of this time, he said that this group was more heartless than any of the other Jews. Uh, they were not super popular. Um, and they were like the rivals of the Pharisees, right? So you've got like Democrats and Republicans. You know, that's these guys, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Theologically, what these guys believed is they were the more liberal theological group. They only... Uh, adhered to the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. We call it the Pentateuch, right? The books of Moses, the, the books of the law. That was it. The rest of the, Bible, the Old Testament, they said, now nah, we don't buy this stuff. The second thing is, they didn't believe in any sort of miracles or an afterlife or like the resurrection, right? And so this group now comes to Jesus with this theological question. Okay, the taxes didn't work. We'll get them this time. So they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies... Having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring of, for his brother. So this is an Old Testament custom uh, called Leverite marriage. And uh, they're, they're, this is in the Pentateuch, right? This is in those first five books. And here was the idea. If a man marries and then he dies before him and his wife can have a child, his brother, if he had one, was supposed to marry the widow and take care of her uh, to preserve the family line. And so 
Uh, now, this, in our culture, this seems barbaric, doesn't it? Right? Like if I died and my brother tried to marry Melissa, I would come back and I would kill him, right? This is, this is not how this works in our culture. So to us, this seems barbaric, but look, a few things here, three things. First, this is a communal culture, and the idea here is we want to take care of this widow because she's part of our community. The second thing is, we forget that pretty much all marriages in most of the world history have been arranged marriages. Our idea of the romantic comedy, you do the meet cute at the coffee shop and you fall in love, and the way we do marriage in the West is pretty new, right? So nobody in this culture would have thought this was weird. And then third, um, nobody, yeah, like I said, right, nobody would be offended because they didn't have romantic comedies back then. They didn't know about this stuff, right? So uh, this was the idea. It was God's way to say, we got to take care of this family and take care of this widow. So they have this situation. Now, they say, this is their imaginary situation. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and then the second. And the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the, all seven had her as a wife. Ooh, I'm so smart. You can almost hear the smugness in their voice as they ask Jesus this question. Do you see the gotcha question here? They're trying to outsmart Jesus theologically because he believes in life after death. And he believes in a resurrection of God's people. So they come up with this situation thinking they found an inconsistency in his thinking, right? Whose wife will this woman be? Because she was the husband, uh, she was the wife of the first guy, then he died. Then the second guy, and then he died. And then the third, and all the way down, seven brothers. And none of them, you know, and then they all died. And then they get into the new heavens and earth or whatever. Whose wife is she going to be? This doesn't make any sense. She can't be seven guys' wives, right? And so Jesus' response, man, okay, wait, before we read his response, let me read to you from Mark. This is kind of funny. Uh, Jesus, this is the same response. Luke leaves this section out, but I love this. Jesus says to them, you can almost hear it in his voice, ugh, what are you, come on, guys. Like, he's exasperated. Is this not the reason that you were wrong? So right away, he goes, you guys are so wrong. Right? He's almost laughing in their face. Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So basically, he goes in front of everybody. Why? You guys are so wrong. Now, the only question is, why are you wrong? Is it because you're stupid or because you're not really spiritual? Those are the two options. And the whole crowd, you can imagine laughing. Ha ha, look at these turkeys. All right, so look at Jesus's actual response. Though. He kind of flushes it out. And he said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So basically, what Jesus says here is, first, uh, this world and the next world are not a one-to-one. Like, they're not exactly the same. So there's two mistakes I think people make when they think about heaven, like the new earth that we're going to live in. The first is they think it's going to be just like this. Right? It's just a different version of earth. Well, that's not true. It's like a better version of earth. And the second mistake that people make is it's not going to be like this at all. This is the picture of heaven we have in our mind where we're all sitting on a cloud playing harps, right? And so the mistake that they make is they think Jesus believes that the new, the resurrection life is going to be exactly like this life. And so Jesus says, no, it's not. And that's the second point, right? Is there's no marriage in the next age. You've made the mistake of assuming this world and that one are exactly the same. And in this world, we... We grow up, you know, we get married, we have kids, right? We, the, the, we um, fill the population, right? Be fruitful and multiply, but we're not going to need to do that in heaven. We're not going to have kids in heaven. That's not how it's going to work. And so Jesus says, you guys don't get that. And if you knew your scripture, you would already understand that. Um, and then the third thing he says is kind of terrifying. Not everybody is going to the new heavens and earth, right? Do you see what he says? Only those who are considered worthy. He doesn't expound on that at all. But I think this was a shot directly at the Sadducees. I think as he was giving this answer, he goes, only those who are actually considered worthy are going to make it. And then the whole crowd laughed and roared like, yeah, because they all, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, sorry, were not popular. And everybody knew they weren't really spiritual. And um, so that's Jesus's answer. Now, verse 37 he keeps going, but the dead are raised, even 
uh, this, is, this is the genius part here. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord of God, uh, sorry, he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So you guys know the burning bush story? Boy, this is going to be a fun afternoon, isn't it? Going home, trying to get her to take a nap. <laughs> anyway, you know the burning bush story? Moses goes, he sees the bush. God's like, take your shoes off, man. You know, like every time uh, I go to any of you Chinese folks' house and I forget to take my shoes off, he's like, take your shoes off, John. I go, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot about that. Because we don't do that in my house. And so Moses takes his shoes off and he has this whole conversation with God. And in the middle of the conversation, right, uh, God gives him his name and he's, he tells him, you know, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here's what's going on. This is really important. Think about this. Jesus' entire argument here for why the resurrection is true and why people live after they die is based off of Hebrew grammar. Do you see what he said? When, when, when Yahweh God was talking to Moses, this is what Jesus says. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I am the God back when they were alive. He's saying, I am still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like right now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive, and I'm still their God. That's how it works in the Hebrew grammar. And so Jesus, what he does is brilliant. He goes to the part of scriptures they actually believe. Remember, they don't, he didn't appeal to the prophets or kings or one of the parts these guys don't even like. He goes to their own scripture parts, and he uses this grammatical argument that's really kind of complex to say you, you guys don't even understand your own scriptures. Right? God says he's still their God. Verse 39, Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. Here's the thing. Uh, this is not, notice how Luke changes the word. The Sadducees were arguing with him, and then the scribes say this to him. Because a lot of the scribes were Pharisees, and the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so this is, yeah, we still hate you, Jesus, but ha ha, <laughs> you just schooled the Sadducees, <laughs> right? That's what's going on in this verse. Okay, uh, so that's kind of the end. And you can imagine now, Jesus, here he goes, he wins round two. And so um, the, at this point, right, you know, in the first part, uh, it says they were silent. They couldn't even answer him. And now they're saying, you've spoken well. And they're probably, the Sadducees aren't, don't even give a response here. They're silent. I've only seen this, I think I've told this story before. I'll just tell it real quick. Once in my life, this kind of just, have you ever lost an argument so hard you just can't even, you just stand there and go, wow, I'm so wrong. I, I just have to be quiet in this moment. I had this happen once. I, I think I told you guys this story. I don't remember. But I was in seminary. And we were all, there was three of us sitting at a table in like the library kind of area. And I don't remember what was happening in the news. Um, but it was me and this older guy. We start arguing something about federal judges. And he was saying federal judges should have to retire or have to run for office and have appointment. You know, they shouldn't be lifetime appointments. And I was arguing with him, and I was saying, no, 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 they should be lifetime appointments. The whole idea is then they don't have to bow to political pressure. They just do what they think is right, and they have their lifetime appointment. Anyway, two guys clearly don't know what we're talking about. And you, you ever seen two guys do that too, by the way, arguing about something? Anyway, so we're arguing, and it probably goes on for five or ten minutes. And there was a lady at our table, I forget her name, uh, but she was like in our, in our classes and stuff. We were always hanging out. And finally, she pipes up, and she goes, you know what? John's right. And the guy gets all mad. The guy I was arguing with, he gets all upset. And he goes, no, and what would you know about it anyway? And she goes, I'm a federal judge. And I was like, I win, <laughs> right? What do you say to that? How do you argue with a federal judge about what it's like to be a federal judge? You know what I mean? Anyway, she had been appointed by Bill Clinton in like the 90s, and she was going to seminary because she was going to become a deacon at her church, and her church required you go to seminary for that. And she was this brilliant lady. And anyway, so that was the moment. I remember looking at his face, and he just sat there just like, you know, I mean, we were two idiots, didn't know what we were talking about. But anyway, I just in that moment, I remember him just, there's nothing to say. You can't argue. That's them now. They're completely like silent. And so what Jesus does is he kicks them while they're down. <laughs> so they've already pretty much lost 
And now he's going to ask them a question. So let's, let's hustle through this because we're almost out of time. But he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? That the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Okay. So I was going to read to you all of Psalm 110, but we don't have time. It's this royal messianic psalm, his scepter and all this stuff. Everybody knows this psalm is about the Messiah. If you have time, write down Psalm 110 in your notes or whatever you're doing and go read it this week. It's really interesting. It's this verse that Jesus quotes here is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's Psalm 110.1. And then let me, um, let me, I'll just flip over to Psalm 110.1. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is, gets a little complicated with what Jesus is saying here, but let me try to explain this to you. This psalm was written by David. And so there's three characters in Psalm 110.1. The first is there's David. He's the narrator. And as the narrator, he already at this point has received the promise. Someday, a descendant of yours is going to be the king, the Messiah from God. So he already knows this. And so he's looking into the heavens and he sees two more characters. And both of these characters he calls Lord. So it gets a little confusing, right? The Lord says to my Lord. Um, the first character there is Yahweh says to my, like, uh, says to my master is what it actually says in Hebrew, right? To my Lord. So he uses the proper name of God. So the first one the first character there is the first Lord. That's God the Father, Yahweh. He uses the proper name. The second character is the promised Messiah. And so here's what goes on, though. The Father says to the Son, hang out here until I go and defeat all your enemies, you know, and then we'll, I'll have you come back for the second coming. Uh, but that's not really the important part. In telling the story, though, David, looking into the future prophetically, sees the Messiah, and he calls him my Lord. Now, if you know anything about these kind of cultures, where, like, the father runs the whole clan, right? You, a father would never call his son Lord. It just wouldn't happen. It's so weird, right? He, you're his Lord, or, you know, uh, the respect goes up the family tree, never down the family tree, there's honor that's due to you because you're the father, you're the grandfather, you're the... And so Jesus asks this question, how is the Messiah the son of David, but at the same time, David calls him Lord as if the Messiah is greater than David? Because that's completely unheard of in our culture. What's the deal with that? And then that's where this verse at the end of 44 is where the honor contest ends. You notice that? We're not given an answer. How is it? How does that work? How can Jesus, or how can David call Jesus Lord if he's his own descendant? The answer, though, let me see if I put this in here. The answer is given in the sequel to Luke. So you remember we've explained this? Luke and Acts are basically like one, it's like Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, and the Two Towers. By the way, I'm reading Fellowship again. This book is fantastic. But, you know, it's like part two is the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, Peter is giving this great sermon, and he quotes this again. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter answers the question later on. The, the reason is because Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. He is the Son of God. He gets into it. All right, so that's our passage, right? We have this, Jesus, this honor contest. Let's look at it. Round one, should we pay our taxes? Who wins the honor contest? Jesus. It's not even close. Round two, what about the resurrection? And this guy and his wives, or this wife and the husbands. Jesus wins that pretty easily. And in doing so, he takes some jabs at the Sadducees to the point where nobody can even respond to him. Round three, Jesus decides to ask a question. And we're not told any sort of an answer, right? Um, I think one of the other Gospels says at the end of that part where Jesus asks about Psalm 110, everybody goes, whoa, this guy's way smarter than us, and they stop asking him questions. 
So Jesus wins all three rounds. Now, let me give you a quick little behind the scenes of how preaching works. Every week, we read the passage and we try to address a problem. And that problem is called, this is a little technical, we call it the fallen condition focus. Basically, I ask this question of every text. How does this text address something that's broken within us because of the fall, because of our sin nature? And then we look at the gospel for an answer. And so today, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to just answer the same question we did last time. Last time we asked the question, we talked about how in our lives we hate the authority of other people. We don't like people to have authority in our lives. And we said we do this to Jesus too because we're fallen and broken. And um, the answer that we gave last time to this issue of we don't like authority in our lives, we don't like people telling us what to do, was why does Jesus get to tell us what to do? And what we said last time, what I said last time was because he's the son of God. And he says it in that passage. I'm the son, you know, you killed the son of God. And just being the son of God means that Jesus gets to tell us what to do. He gets to have authority in our lives. But here's the other, the second half of this. Building on that, that would be terrible news if Jesus was an idiot. But also being the son of God, what this means is, you guys, he's wicked smart as they say in Boston, right? Wicked smart, (laughs) right? Not only is he the son of God, but he's the perfect son of God. And in theology, we call this, this idea, there's there's an idea called omniscience. You guys know what that means? You ever heard this idea? Omniscience. Who knows what it means? Take a shot. All-knowing. Yep. He knows everything. And what that means is, this is really cool. We serve a God who knows everything. So if you go through like a systematic theology, they'll list a couple things. He knows the past perfectly. God has never had one of those moments where he remembered something wrong and then his wife corrected him. I've never had that either. I shouldn't even hear. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I have a phenomenal memory and Melissa doesn't and it's really funny. Anyway, so I'm always like giving her crap. But he's never had one of those moments where he actually, and so when Melissa does remember something and I don't, she really lets me have it. But he's never had one of those. He knows everything from the past. He knows the future perfectly. He knows what's going to happen at the end of time. He knows himself perfectly. Have you ever learned something about yourself that you didn't realize? And you went, oh, I do that. Like how I say in sermons, here's the deal. I never knew that. I didn't, I've never said that. And then one time somebody was doing an impression of me preaching. <laughs> That's how it started. I was like, hey, screw you, man. And he goes, here's the deal. And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't say that. And it turns out I, I listened to one sermon. I said it like 50 times. I was like, ah, crap, you know. I learned something. God has never had one of those realization moments where he learns something about himself. But here's the key. This is like I'm trying to fly through my ending notes here. Here's the key. Not only does he know the past perfectly and the future perfectly and himself perfectly, He knows you perfectly. Let me read you two verses, if I have them. Uh, Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts. So he even knows what you think. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. God knows you better than you do. Isn't that that kind of terrifying? He knows your thoughts. Everything you think, God knows it. Everything you do, everything you're going to do, he knows it. The worst thing you have ever done, God knows about it. All the secrets you've never told anybody, God knows. Even the good things that you've done, God knows that you probably did those with mixed motives. Right? He knows everything about you. But here's the amazing part. He knows all of that stuff, and he died for you anyway. He died to bring you into the people of God anyway. He predestined from all eternity to adopt you into his family. He wrote your name in the book of life. That's our Lord. He knows it all and he loves you anyway. And so applying this passage then, that Jesus is wicked smart, two things. This means that his ways are perfect. 
Everything that God does is perfect. He's a, look at Jesus in this passage. He's a genius. He is running theological circles around the guys who grew up memorizing the Old Testament. There was a thing these guys used to do. Uh, they would teach people like this. They didn't have chapter and verse numbers back then. And so what a, what a, um, what a rabbi would do is he would quote one verse. And then the kids would have to quote the verse before or like the sentence before and after that section. That's how well these guys knew most of the Old Testament. And Jesus walks up and he walks theological circles around them. Right? He pulls a, um, you guys remember Goodwill Hunting when he's in the bar? And that guy from Harvard, you guys know this movie? Have you seen it? So like um, Matt Damon's a genius townie living near, is it Harvard? Harvard. Um, really going after Boston today. And uh, he's in a bar and his friend Ben Affleck is pretending to be smart and he's not. And so some guy from Harvard tries to embarrass him with all these facts. And then Matt Damon comes up and he's smarter than the guy who thinks he's real smart. And he makes that joke about, you know, you, everything I know, or I forget how it goes. What does he say? Like, um, you spent $150,000 on an education you could have got for $3 in late fees at the public library. You know, that's what, and then everybody, oh, Matt Damon wins the honor contest, right? That's what Jesus does to these guys, right? He absolutely is brilliant. And what that means then is he's smarter than you, right? Isaiah says it. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways, not like yours, dude. I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) right? Jesus, so we are broken at the core of our beings. Our ways are usually terrible. Have you ever had a friend come to you with a really bad idea? and they thought it was a good idea? That's most of our ideas that we bring to God. Hey, I've got this idea. The truth is God's probably thinking, what a dummy, because you are, and so am I. We're dummies. But the good news is he's not, and he speaks to us. And so we need to be the kind of people who get into the habit of remembering what, even if from my perspective, I think whatever God is telling me to do here is stupid, he's probably right, and I'm probably wrong. We need to get to that level of trust with the Lord. Now, I'll say that's a really easy thing to preach and a really hard thing to do. When you get into life and you're going through Scripture and you feel like God is leading me into this or that or whatever, but I don't want to do it. (laughs) I don't think that's a good idea, but it's clear this is what God says. We need to be the kind of people that stop and think and go, you know what? I bet he's right and I'm wrong. I bet I'm missing something. So that's the first thing. The second, the last idea is this idea of the, the, the brilliance of Jesus means he loves you even more than you could ever imagine. You're going to be tempted to shrink the love of God in your mind. And when that happens, when you sometimes forget how vast and deep and wide and beautiful the love of God is, you're going to forget that. You need to stop and you need to remember God knows everything about me. Right? And most of us think like this. We, we hide things because we think if this person really knew everything about me, they would reject me. God knows everything about you and he loves you anyway. And that's how deep his love is. That's amazing, isn't it? That's a massive amount of love. And so let's be the kind of people who serve this Savior in those two ways. Who let him have his way in our life because his ways are perfect. And we want to be the kind of people who remember how wide and deep his love is. Amen? Let's pray.